Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hello and welcome to a very special episode, episode 43 of the podcast Undermine, brought to you by Osiris Media. 43 happens to also be the age of my co-host, but that actually doesn't matter at all. I'm Tom Marshall, your host, your guide in this historic Fish Fall 97 tour. Actually, to this historic Fish Fall 97 tour. I'm not in the tour. We are nearing the end of this journey, but today we need to make a stop in the middle of Pennsylvania. So that's what we're going to do. Here's my co-host, RJB. RJ. Hello, Tom. Uh, when you said it's a very special episode, um, usually in like TV terms in the 80s, that means that we're going to tackle a serious topic like, you know, something driving, very serious. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, <laughs> drugs or or drinking, which neither of which happened at, at this show at all, I don't think. So <laughs> glad about that. Um, we're, we're at State College, Pennsylvania. It was actually a, a, a snowy adventure. And we're going to talk to it. We're going to talk about it with our friend and guest, Benji. Hey, Benji, bringing you in. Hi, guys. <clears throat> Hi RJ. Hi, Tom. Tom Marsupial. Tom Tom's got, Tom gets the award this season for He's, the creative screen names. Uh, a man um, of many appellations. <laughs> we are uh, 
we we were I was there. Benji was there at the show, 12997. We were both there, but we weren't together. And it's sort of complicated. But before we get to it, <laughs> we're just going to encourage everyone for one of the last times, because we're almost at the end here, consider subscribing to Osiris Premium. You can get a lot of awesome stuff. And have you submitted your show review yet? Um, I know Tom has. He's been submitting them and, and tagging Osiris Pod for his memories of Fall 97. But you should do the same. And then you can compete with Tom to win a handwritten copy of the lyrics to Ghost, courtesy of Tom. Um, okay. Also, in two days, we're going to be doing a live show in Ardmore right outside of Philly. You'll see the three of us on stage and a bunch of special guests. We have it all planned out already. And we're going to be talking Fish 97. We're going to do Q&A. And then we're going to have an amazing set of music as a tribute to Fall 97 with musicians, including Cal Kehoe from Pink Talking Fish, Jeremy Kaplan from Dogs in a Pile, Adrian Tramontano from Twiddle, Chris DeAngelis, a bunch of others. Um, you can get your tickets at osirispod.com slash Philly. And if you can't make it, we will be streaming it at volume.com slash Osiris. Thanks to Volume for doing that. Okay, Tom, Benji, how do we how do we dive into this 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 night in December? I I will say, and this does not answer that question at all, that Adrian Tramontano is an amazing, amazing drummer. Like I didn't know how amazing he was. Maybe he's like the best drummer I know, apart from like John Fishman. Many people say that he's amazing. I think he's great. I also love the drummer from Goose, but everyone knows that too. So there's three amazing drummers. Ben is incredible. Ben is incredible. All right. Well, enough about drummers. Come see one of the three amazing drummers that that were just <laughs> mentioned on December 11th. But they won't all be there. Nope. Just one. Just one. All right. So, all right. Back to RJ's question. How are we gonna How are we gonna tackle? this why don't we just start by asking benji uh because i know you guys both were there i was not there this is one of the shows in this in this tour that i was not at because i would only go to the ones kind of near me like you know clustered near new jersey this was a little too far plus it was snowing i understand <laughs> benji how did you arrive at state college for this concert in december of 1997 well, Tom, in order to answer your question, I am going to, uh, I might get ahead of myself or, or behind myself, but I, I might not even fully answer your question at all. But I think I learned that from Trey. So, <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, I, I think I, I was, I arrived in State College before the show uh, by a full day. Because the night before the show happened, there was another show that happened at State College, and that was the Disco Biscuits. And now we know from when we talked to Mark Brownstein, Brownie from the Biscuits, uh, just a, a week ago on the show um, for 12-2 Philadelphia, the Biscuits were kind of following Fish around, playing a bunch of after shows. Um, and, and occasionally the band members themselves would, would make it to shows. Now, two days before the show at, in State College, Fish played the Nutter Center. And if you look at the week that they had leading up to this night in State College, it, it's pretty substantial. I mean, to the point where if I say the Nutter Center and you're a Fish fan, you're already thinking about ACDC bag and a Psycho Killer or actually, you know what? The, 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 my favorite Fish Lot shirt of all time uh, says, um, and it's not really G-rated, but it says, I fucked your wife to the 12797 tube. That's a that's a real <laughs> that's a real T-shirt, right? Uh, which I've been meaning to get for a long time. So, in any case, uh, 
Fish played that legendary show, you know, that we still talked about today and have shirts like that, you know, with people running around wearing them. So in the, the palace. And of course, with the palace, everyone's thinking of the tweezer. So this Penn State show that they play on that Tuesday, this is where I'm about to get ahead of myself. It's not necessarily in the same category as that or in the same breath. But, um, you know, that's if in a, in a playoff, it's unfair competition because they also had uh, Hampton and Worcester. Nonetheless, you know, I think when... The reason I brought up the Nutter Center is by that night before Fish played the Bryce Jordan Center, the night after they played the Nutter Center, everyone already knew the set list from the Nutter Center. This was before pocket downloads uh, or desktop stream, streaming. Uh, and, you know, if there's no way to hear a show within a few days of, a, of it happening, unless you were a taper or sleeping with one or, you know, whatever. But even even tapes needed to go through the mail, Right. So we just saw the set list from the Nutter Center and we read the reviews online and we knew that it was a crazy show and we knew that it was a crazy week. And a lot of people were coming into State College from uh, Ohio at that point. When a band finishes playing in a town, they get on their tour bus right after and they wake up in the next town or they fall asleep in the next town, depending on the variables. So on this particular night, Fish themselves rolled into Penn State a day early and this is where I will answer your question, Tom. So do I. <laughs> so I'm there. Uh, I, I remember there was already snow on the ground, and I think it, it was still snowing, but I was living in Harrisburg, PA, an hour and a half away. I had a lot of friends at State College, uh, including Carla No, who we've had on this podcast, and uh, a lot of you know my fish tour friends, and of course the Disco Biscuits, who are friends of mine at this point, and they were burgeoning as a band. They were really just getting their feet off the ground, there was a buzz about them at this time, the buzz that you only hear about a band when they're they're past the if stage and they enter the when stage. Um, you know, like we can we can make a living at this. We we have something here. There was an there was an undeniable magnetism to their shows. The term bisco hadn't even been coined yet, and the reason I'm bringing this up uh, here is that at that point, the disco biscuits audience was predominantly fish fans, predominantly fish fans on fish tour seeing the band, you know, um, and I, the Biscuits were part of that, that jam band, uh, era where Fish was incredibly, you know, Humphreys McGee also, and those uh, members of that band will talk about this, how, you know, Fish was, was really, it, it, it set their career paths and, and it really truly influenced them, you know, um, uh, as we've heard from, from testimony. So that's what the Disco Biscuits were at in their, their career. They're playing hundred, 200 people, a night, and on this particular night, they're playing at a place called Cafe 210 West. Um, I know you're still thinking that we're supposed to be talking about fish on 12.9, but we're talking about the disc biscuits on 12.8. I show up around around uh, soundcheck and load-in, basically to smoke pot with brownie and hang out and feel cool for a few minutes. And lo and behold, Trey shows up. Now, you know, remember just a, a week earlier, Fish played uh, in Philadelphia on 12-2, 12-3, and Worcester before that, the Biscuits played after shows there. Mike Gordon showed up in Philadelphia. Tom, I'm pretty sure that you showed up for that one as well. Um, but uh, this is a week later. The Disco Biscuits are playing in a small cafe. Everyone on tour is is trying to get into it. And Trace wins by. Uh, Mike and Fishman made it to the Biscuit show that night as well. But uh, I have this vivid memory of sitting at this very big table. This was before doors opened, I think. So it was basically the Disco Biscuits friends and, and hangers on and Trey and Brad Sands 
and there's this big table there. And remember, this was a different era for everybody. So Trey is buying everybody shots of tequila. <laughs> so, well, so that's that's the setting for a fish at state college that, that, that's an incredible uh way so benji demonstrated one way of answering um that question rj i'm uh, sorry man, was there a question <laughs> and, I, and I'm, I'm almost afraid to ask it again but i'm going to ask rj this time and and you can decide how you choose to answer it, and then we can compare the two answers um and if we compare them by weight i already know which one is going to win um what about you rj I know you had a crazy travel story uh, to get there as well. Yeah, it was a little more uh, tame for sure. So I was in Columbus, you know, I went to Dayton two nights before. And then that morning we left and drove to State College from Columbus. And uh, my friend had a Defender 90, which is like, you know, a Range Rover. And there was no, there were only two seats in it. And like the back was just like, you just sat in the back. Bench. Uh, Oh, okay. There was no bench. It was oh. just like, and we took my friend <laughs> no and I bench. took turns sitting in the back. And there's a there's a there's a most of it's highway, but then you get to a point near you know like near Pittsburgh where you get off the highway and you take sort of side roads up for a while. And it was snowing, and it was like four o'clock, and then it was five o'clock, and then it was six o'clock, and we were bouncing all over the inside of this Defender ninety, going around these curves in like the driving snow and. Um, somehow we made it alive and into the show, but not in time for the beginning of the show. So I walked in halfway through Mike's song and it was like the most uncomfortable and terrifying five hour, six hour, seven hour drive that, that I can remember actually. So that that's Benji and I arrived there very differently. Definitely differently. And I should just note that Defender nineties are made for that like terrible weather or terrible conditions. So uh, even though you were uncomfortable, you were probably safe. Well, probably that depends on the driver too. Of course. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think I was only, I think I was supposed to, when we were supposed to be one person fewer. (laughs) Nice. Nice. So Benji, this, Benji, this, this music, uh, I think, I feel like this is like a little bit of a transition to a different phase of funk. Like it almost sounds like it's, it's a little heavier. It's a little darker. It's more integrated. It it feels like it's like more a part of the sound than what we heard earlier in the tour. And I really noticed it in the listening back and, and going straight to the mics. Um, I don't know. Did, does that, does that sit? How does that sit with you? Do you, do you think about that at all when you're thinking about these, these, this show in, in comparison to others earlier in the tour? Um, it does sit with sit with me. I do think that there's an, an, another difference uh, this night, but but uh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, I feel like at this point in the tour, with any tour with Fish, especially a 1.0 era Fish, every tour they were a different band in that they were there was a different emphasis that they had, and almost like uh, a lot of it was in addition. It wasn't in, in exchange. You know, they were adding to their to to their repertoire. They were adding to. Uh, I I don't like using the term bag of tricks because that trivializes it, but they were adding to all the tools that they had with them. And so this tour, obviously, as the the popular narrative is, it's the California tour. And uh, you know, but uh, that's just one thing that they that's one thing in their in their bag that they that they can do. And I I feel like by this point. In Salt Lake City and and in Denver, um, and the shows immediately after, none of them sound tentative, 
but they do sound they're like exploring this and and they're seeing where it can go and by this point they're just so confident in it that they they know what they can do and they there's room for it they know where to put it do you feel like this first set is a little disjointed cuz i feel like when i was there it felt very cohesive but then listening back it's a little bit it's a little bit all over the place but it, this like big Mike's groove, it's a big Mike's groove because there's a lot of songs in between, but I think that makes it worth revisiting. But what are your overall thoughts on this on this set? Well, well okay, so for context, I was in the front row for this show, actually. Uh, um, uh, it was it was seated. It wasn't general admission. Uh, it was seated, and I, I got the, the tickets at like a convenience store, Ticketmaster, after camping out, you know, for, for them. So I was thrilled when they opened up with mites, of course. But, you know, you have on paper what appears to be a pretty exciting opening frame, right? Instead, though, it's what I would call a showcase frame. And in and, and doing so, it may have disappointed, you know, some of my peers, uh, some of my crowd, you know, which were kids that had been on tour and had already seen six, seven shows by that point, including perhaps Hampton, Worcester, Philly, Dayton, these, these Leviathans, right? So this show, though, it wasn't played for them. It wasn't played for us, I mean. It was... It was played for, you know, college kids who were able to see the new subculture phenomenon that was sweeping the nation or destroying it, rather. You know, it was a Tuesday night right on campus between school days, you know, and we've talked before on this podcast about how there was a period of time when every fish show felt like fish had just played the best fish show of all time how every night you left feeling like the band was one show better than they had ever been before, you know, and every show that you saw was your favorite. Going not by this show, but by a few that happened on the tour leading up to this and going by the reaction of some of our other guests uh, uh, that we've had in the on this on this journey, I think that period is safely over by now. It probably ended after New Year's Eve 95. And so instead, the band has different types of shows that they play on different types of nights, you know, um, in the fall 97 tour, Fish, they had already been defined. And in some ways, as we've been exploring, they were redefining themselves. Um, but, you know, this was towards the end of the tour and didn't feel like the band was trying to say something new. Going back to your previous question, RJ, it didn't seem like the band was trying to say something new that wasn't said before. It was like they were presenting all these things, you know, like a magician that, um, like a magician that's mastered a new trick it was now ready to ask any kid that came along to pick a card and a card, but like eagerly, right? Because, you know, uh, you have the, the this college crowd there, a lot of whom were seeing the band for the first time, you know, uh, and, and a lot of others who had only seen the band a year before when they played the same venue in, in 96. So when you talk about a mites groove, right, which opened the show, when we say mites groove, just for disambiguation, you know, we're talking about mites song and then Wikipod groove, and whatever they want to put in the middle, you know, which in my mind, I immediately go to Sits 2294, right? And some of those other summer 94 shows, certainly 93, really anything from 92 to 95, to be honest. That's the golden age for Mites Groove by, by my measuring stick, you know? And as I said, Fish was kind of doing showcase Fish on this night. And I think that they were pretty successful in their objective, uh, if that's their objective, right? Playing a college arena on a college campus on a Tuesday night, turning yeah. on more people than they turned off, you know, while while retaining their hardcore faithful. You know, nobody, 
no, no, no matter how jaded of a fan you were, nobody left this night saying that they're over it, right? They just, there are a sizable number of first and second timers left saying that they were over the moon, you know, and everybody else said, hey, that, that was cool. You know, uh, it, it wasn't the greatest show on earth. You know, we'll leave that for the Barnum and Bailey nights that, that, you know, came previously and will come after this. Instead, I think I probably left that night, you know, after, especially being in the front row, I think I left that night high-fiving my friends and going, that was great. Let's get a bar. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That all makes a lot of sense. And it's like a 15,000 person place. So it's not, you know, it's not like yeah. a small college arena, but um, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I and, think that's uh, good context. I mean, all the college freshmen there are having their minds blown for the first time uh, on acid or ecstasy, whatever. And like I said, I think Fish obtained their objective there, you know. But to that point, the, the songs these songs in the opening frame, right. That, that are look so powerful on paper. They had no risk to them when they were played. They didn't jump off any cliffs and, and they, they, they didn't have the wings to fly. And of course my favorite, uh, you know, as the cliche kind of goes, it's, it's when they jump off of cliffs. And I don't mean that sadistically because as the saying goes, they, they discover their wings on the way down and then they fly to such great heights, you know? And I feel like they were doing that on this tour throughout the whole tour and tonight you know i i feel like there's a weird energy in a college town on a college campus um as you might remember rj there was a a, a very tense it was a very tense scene with like the 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 campus police yeah uh, were yeah. cracking down outside uh it, the campus police were were straight up hawkish you know it, it was almost like trying to go see rocky horror picture show with their parents or like in an official like high school assembly or something, kind of <laughs> antithetical to the experience, you know. Yeah, this is an old. Uh, this is before wingsuits were invented. So when they jumped off the cliff, they they didn't have a wingsuit. They had to that, that's had right. to actually fly. Uh, RJ, do you agree with Benji that uh, you know apart from the the large mics groove, did anything else uh, stand out to you, or was that kind of it for the? Not first really. Set? I mean, the stash is like is interesting, but it's very straightforward. There's not a lot of uh, pushing beyond the kind of type one structure of the song and yeah i mean it is it is a fairly like it's a lot of songs you know and and it's really like the first song is the is the best and the rest is just sort of like put together cool what does uh what does fish do after uh they play the first set guys <laughs> they um don't take any break they just play straight through until the second set we are going to break that tradition and take a break right now for a word from our sponsors Hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine.
Thanks, Distro Kid. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! We are back from break. Thank you. Thank you, sponsors. It was great to hear from you, sponsors. Um, RJ, take over. We're with our our one of our favorite guests, Benji. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they 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 opened the second set with Julius, and I don't, I just don't know why Julius was so such a kind of focus of this tour. Do you guys have any any theories about that? Not not like overly focused, but I feel like a lot of the shows that that I saw and a lot of these shows had a had like an interesting Julius placement. Um, at least you know five of the of the fall tour shows. Um, Benji, do you have any theories about that? No, in fact, RJ, that's interesting because it's immediately evident to be true. But at the same time, I uh, I never looked at it like that before. Julius was in the repertoire, you know, and uh, they were playing. What does get lost to history, I think, is that Julius is one of those songs. Um, I'm trying to think of another example of a song. It, it's a it's a song that every time they play it, it it's pretty great, right? It, it, it there's very few Juliuses though that are the highlight of the show. Uh, it, it's a, it's a song piece, you know, and often therefore belonging the first set, you know, under yeah. ten under the ten minute mark. Uh, these Juliuses in '97. Now that you say it, and this is why I think that you're onto something. They were a few minutes longer, you know. It was type one jamming. So it's like, you know, a typical character zero or a typical, you know, uh, a little bit more than a cavern maybe, um, but and a little bit less than a stash, you know? Yeah, um, so <laughs> yeah that's, a good, that's a good way to look at it. You know, it's somewhere right in there. Uh, it's a great song, you know. Um, I, I I remember hearing it for the first time on, on the studio hoist uh, the day that that, al- that that album came out. And it was kind of a new sound for them in some ways, you know, and I remember thinking that and then yet it was, it was still very fishy, you know, but it had something to it is it's uh, back when every song sounded so different. It kind of had a, they had, I think, and this is a, I don't, I don't mean it this way if this sounds nasty, but I, I think it was really important to the band. And I think the band assumed that it was as important to us as it was to them. Uh, eventually they proved that it, that it became that way. But I, I remember it was a huge deal in the studio for them because they had, I mean, it's like, a, it's like they t- kind of embodied a, a black style of, of music. They had, they had uh, horns. They, they were playing this sort of um, whatever that swing style is. Yeah. Um, and, and, singers. and then they yeah. had, they had the yeah. singers and then they had the choir, sort of a, a gospel church choir. And it was just an incredible kind of statement and uh, maybe a departure for, for fish, at least studio wise. It was a huge, huge, production and it sounds huge the studio version um did that translate and, and automatically make sense to everyone uh, on the road 
I think eventually, but um, maybe not right away. But yes, they they kept playing it and playing it, and uh, it is it's such a good song that I think people get it. But I don't know if they they got it to the extent that that fish wanted them to. Maybe I don't know. Well, at the time too, I remember you know when Julius came out. It, it was a standard. It was immediately a standard. It's, yeah. it's put into the re- into the repertoire. It's you know you're not going to be surprised by anything they do with it. It's gonna it's going to be you know. A, a, and if you like the tune, then then you like the tune. And I happen to like the tune. That said, I remember there was a show at Hershey Park Stadium where for the encore, if I'm remembering this right, Trey said that it was Brad Sands's brother's birthday and that they were going to take your request and play whatever song he wanted. And, you know, and it, and it was Julius. And I remember being so upset, being like, if the, they asked me, you know, any song I wanted to hear, it wouldn't be a song that you just wait for another show or two and you're going to hear. You know, <laughs> it would have been like a Dodlog or, you know, a rare. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. That... It, it's, it's like requesting sample in a jar. Nowadays, though, and the, the irony, of course, is that I have lots of friends that in the past, in 4.0, every night they're waiting for a Julius. Cool. Yeah. I say lots yeah. of friends. I mean one. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So the 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 focal point of this uh, set is the simple, which comes next, and it's really different than a lot of fall '97 jams. It's very like quiet and and contemplative in some parts, and then it and then it kind of gets gets moving. But um, it's it's very there's a lot going on here in the you know whatever however many minutes twenty or or more minutes. Um, is this does this save the the show in terms of the like where it ranks? Because I feel like we this is a jam that isn't like talked about that that much. It's it's a jam that gets lost to history, and uh, it's interesting going back and re-listening to all these shows chronologically because it, this simple does remind me. And the set list overall, there's a lot of of uh, you know the repertoire was smaller back then, I guess. But December second in Philadelphia, where the band plays. As simple and in, in the second set, and and uh, it is, you know, they they uh, they drop out, so it's just kind of this tray and page interplay uh, that then and that show goes into Dodgeface Boy, you know, and it both of these versions strike me as they are a kind of a centerpiece to the to the set, and when you think about '97 and what uh, 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 if you were to say uh, not give a, a date. And just say, you know, uh, archetypical f- fall '97 show. What do you think the highlight of of the second set would be musically? Not even the name of the song, but what what what's going on musically? I don't think you'd think of these simples. You'd think of you know a ghost with a stop start jam, maybe, you know, or bring the dude style, right? And instead, yeah. this is this is a very you know gentle. Inter, uh, inter, uh, inter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> very intricate. Uh, I can't say that word. Intricate. Um, thank you. <laughs> Intracranial. Yes, and inter- there you go, and uh, and just a very cerebral, you know, jam, and and it's it's, it's, it's beautiful, uh, you know, or, or as as we would say in Pennsylvania, it's it's fucking beautiful, man.
the segue into timber, which sounds like David Bowie, and then it becomes timber. But this is like a perfect, perfect place for timber after this twenty-nine minute simple. It, it just, man, this uh, this little segment though is is definitely pretty pretty amazing. Well, I always I, think of timber and dog log as like Paul's favorite uh, songs for them to play to to get the sound, you know, during sound check. Yeah. And and that's right. And Timber was a bust out that they did in Sugarbush. And up until the the Sugarbush '95 bust out, it was it you know it, it it had been. I don't know how long of a gap it had been, but it it had been uh, a long time because it was a huge bust out at the time. And uh, I remember very specifically because again I was in the front row riding the rail and very excited about that. And uh, when it sounded like Simple was going into Bowie. And Bowie at the time, I think, was probably my favorite song uh, because of those mid-90s Bowies, you know. Um, and this was kind of on the tail end of it, but Bowie always has that possibility and you're always rooting for it to be the highlight of the show. And so I was, you know, it, it was when it, veering towards Maze and I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, better veer back towards Bowie. <laughs> and I remember fighting that battle internally, you know, and... Then it's definitely sounded like Bowie. And I was so stoked and confident about where this was gonna go. And then they they kind of uh they they fooled me and uh, you know going right into Timber Ho. It was a fake out. It was a classic, classic fake out. I want to hear this from both of you guys. Um, where would you guys put this this show then? Um, you know, in the broad picture of the of the tour. RJ, RJ. first. Yep. You know, I don't know. It, even though I was there, it, it, it isn't it isn't that um, it's just like not it doesn't rise to the top, even though it's one of the, you know, five or six shows that I saw. Um, I guess it would have to go in like the lower third. But I don't I don't know more specifically than that. If there even was a lower third. I, uh... What do you think, Benji? I don't know if there is a lower third to this tour, and that I think I think every show from this tour uh, matters uh, in in terms of painting a bigger picture. But uh, I do think that there's an important thing for us to kind of uh, explore here for a moment, and that's that you know we kind of covered you know where it sits in the tour. It's it's a, it's a gentle creature nestled between dragons, right? But I I do think that we need to give a little more context to this show by giving it. I think it it's it really reveals something about the tour at large that we don't really talk about a lot, but that is, uh, you know, a huge a huge part of the definition of this tour. And it's not Trey getting puked on at the Disco Biscuit show the night before, um, but that night, the night before the day off, uh, this does totally play into it. So the night before, it's the day off for the band for Fish, and Mike Gordon also showed up at the Biscuit show, and then th- he was throwing a tour bus party that night. And I, I, I believe he was probably throwing these parties the whole the whole tour. But there are stories of him, uh, firsthand stories of, of him going into the record store and buying every Prince CD that they had, and then going to the tour bus, inviting a few friends of mine along with him, and putting on the CDs and, and having this 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 dance party. You know, um, which as as Brownie pointed out last week on this show, unbelievable that they only had one tour bus. You know, back back then, uh, and that they all the tour buses are very crammed. You know, uh, uh, and so anyway, I think it's an, it's important for our context for the show because uh, it was a party show in a in a uh, you know on a party campus, and it's a party tour in some ways. And I don't mean that 
in a way that, uh, you know, th there's kind of, there's a way of, of saying it's a party tour that's dismissive or condescending. And I don't mean it like that. There's the, you know, Fish had these legendary moments along the way. Um, but they also were at the same time becoming a, a party soundtrack band for for the season, right? So they played the Palace with that tweezer. They played the Nutter Center with that crazy nutty show. They they have this night off. The party continues. Trey gets puked on. Mike throws a a, a party, you know, uh, on the tour bus, right? Uh, they're seeing another band that that formed literally, you know, because of them or or at least heavily influenced by them, and it's this this nonstop party. Now take one second to look back. 1996, Fish is playing arenas, right? For the first time going on a national arena tour. And they're trying to find that footing in that kind of setting. And they rose from ballrooms and theaters just so incredibly fast. Now, in this is something I was thinking about last night. In other parallel universes, right? Let me, I'm curious to see if you agree with me. In other parallel universes, they could have gone the way of a pure King Crimson or a Frank Zappa route, you know, veered more towards the art rock. And they would have been a cult sensation. I mean, 92, 93, 94, 95, they already were a cult phenomenon. You know, they already were playing arenas, but they were playing small, hot, old, smelly hockey arenas. And if they continued to be an art rock band, you know, which I love, that's, you know, it was like that That audience was the dorky college audience and computer nerd, you know, computer lab nerds like myself, right? I don't know if that gets you to Madison Square Garden for 13 nights. Are you, um, are you saying that in 97, Fish discovered that uh, girls are, they went from nerdiness to discovering that girls are fun and that dancing is fun and girls want to dance at, at, at shows? <laughs> yeah, I, I I kind of am. And there's there's a few elements to it. But in, in 96, they were asking themselves, how do we make this work in a larger arena, right? Because they they're, they had this meteoric rise and suddenly they're in these huge – the small hockey arenas lend themselves to that <laughs> zany fish thing where you go on these crazy journeys and you can have eternal forbins yeah. or an iculus because these hockey arenas have these small hockey arenas have that vibe dripping from the, from the walls right this but when you get to these larger places they're so impersonal and they're so huge and there's suddenly an extra 10,000 people in the room and a lot of those people are first timers curiosity seekers people that heard that it's a fun time and fish needs to entertain those people too you know, and also bring the, bring them in. So in 97, they found the answer that they're looking for by saying, let's take everything that we've done before and add a dance party to it, you know? Exactly. And, a, 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 and I would argue that, that they were a dance band before in their own right. You know, like I, I used to- Except there wasn't, was a, there wasn't a party every night. The, this tour, there was a party every single night. There was a bus party every, every single night. That's right. And, and and on top of that, you had scores of new people, score, just a tsunami of new people that were discovering fish. They had been this word of mouth sensation. And in 97, you have a, a new, uh, maybe the second or third growth spurt for the band, but it, it's new and it, it's, it, it was different. It had a different nature to it than, than the first few ones. You know, initially you had this music that was an intensely psychedelic, that was heady, that had this intellectual quality to it. It was nerdy. Uh, that, yeah, and had an abundance of humor, which kind yeah. of made it nerdy maybe, and yeah. these yeah. antics and zaniness, and also very Grateful Dead, you know, like yeah. uh, adjacent, you know? It was anything but the mainstream, you know, especially considering what was going on and dominating 
college radio at that point, I I mean, let's think about it. Early 90s, you'd have Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Grunge, Alternative, uh, Collective Soul, right? But, you know, this was kind of like the the counterculture alternative to the alternative to, to, to that, you know? Yeah. And a new demographic was coming into the fold, and this was... Uh, I, I want to be careful here how I say this, but it was a lot of college kids that were also discovering ecstasy at the same time, right? And I think that that, that can be like documented. Like, you know, beforehand you had acid and you had psychedelics and you had, you had weed. And I know it's kind of taboo to talk about this in, in terms of history. It doesn't mean that's what the scene is today by any means. This was a time and place in, in history. In 1997, not just at Fish. Ecstasy had flooded America, right? In terms of college campuses, right? 97 and 98. And before that, it was, you you didn't see it anywhere here. You saw it maybe in Manchester, England warehouse parties, right? But it was such a powerful drug. And when you take it and you dance, and, you know, it it was made for a dance party and something happens and it's different than an acid trip. So I think Fish previously, musically, they were an acid trip. And then suddenly in 97 and 98, they were a band that a lot of people saw as a really fun band to get rolled to. And that's, you know, a number of factors that come from way far beyond the band yeah. that, that played into that. And of course, then it evolved and it changed. But, you know, a night like this, when they were in a college town, you know, playing to people that didn't even know the band, I, I would say that there was probably as much ecstasy in that building that night as there was Weed at the Grateful Dead show in 1972. You know, Benji, and, you're a you're a music historian, you're a music journalist, and and you said it, you just said it, and it's a theory of yours. However, uh, it's it's validated. I mean, Trey Trey said in his careful way, he said uh, for this tour, you could not separate the party from the music. The, yep. the music that happened on that tour did not would not have happened had they not been, you know, partying all night, checking out James Brown or Prince or whatever night after night after night during this tour. That, that's right. And Fish, I think, I I think, I mean, I, I can't speak for them, of course, but I, it, it sounds, I would confidently say they were aware of what was happening in the front of house, you know, and it's just, it wasn't, it wasn't by design by any means. It was, it was what was happening across the board in youth culture at that point in American history. And, and it's this, it, there's no, it's not a coincidence that in 1997, it was around the same time that you had electronic bands and electronica, as it was called at the time, and EDM start to rise in America. You know, um, and audiences and, uh, were responding well to grooves. They were responding well to grooves. That's exactly right. And and the musicians on stage for a fish show were they had to, you know, they were crafting the soundtrack to all of this and they were kind of engineering the party and engineering the experience. And you know, Trey is such a showman, he knows how to entertain everyone in that building. And he knew at the time, especially for a show like this, where talking about this specific Penn State show, you know, it, when you look at the audience before you look at the music that was played that night from Fish in Fish's context, you look at the audience, it wasn't the same audience that was it when Fish played Rec Hall in 94, which is also on State College campus. It was that show was was catered to fish fans. You know, it was a very cool, very, there, there's, there's a Henrietta segment, you know, it was just, it was a very much a, a, a fish catered experience. And, and here it was just like the show that came before the 96 uh, in, in Bryce Jordan center, which was a, even 
more forgettable in some ways and that I was there and I don't remember any of it other than, than, than having that feeling when I left that, yeah, that was fun, you know, but I don't need to get, go and get the tapes. And I, I think that, you know, when you're 19 to 22 years old, dancing to ecstasy at fish, there was nothing like that in the entire world. Nothing came before it either. That, that's what you have to remember. It was a different experience. It wasn't like dancing on acid to the Grateful Dead, you know, which was another time and place that happened. But both of those experiences that I talked about, they, they both were unprecedented at the time. And they both are now legends of the American night, you know. Uh, and have nothing adding- to have nothing to do with why you can't remember this, these particular no, shows. No, not at all. And, and, and <laughs> that's right. And, you know, I'm not advocating for, for, for that experience. I, you know, we're all in a much different place and time in American history, uh, all of us, you know. But I, I do think that we need to keep that in mind when we talk about Fall 97, Fish. It's, it's part of the context. Benji, that's a tremendous summary. I have a feeling we're going to probably revisit that summary on stage when we talk live about this tour. Um, RJ, is there anything else you'd like to ask our guest before we say goodnight? No, the, you covered it all. We'll continue it on, on stage at the Ardmore Music Hall in two days. It's really eloquent, Benji, and, and I think you are exactly correct. I think, uh, you, you know, Trey confirms it. Listen to the Trey interview that RJ and I did again, and it's pretty much... Uh, uh, possibly a more PC way of saying what you what you just said. It, you know, there's no throw up on shoes or anything. But <laughs> um, <laughs> that's going to do it for us today. Thank you uh, to my fellow co-hosts and house guests, mm-hmm. RJB and Benji Eisen. Thanks to the Osiris team that we have behind us. And thank you for listening. By the way, if you need tickets for anything coming up, like say Fish's New Year's Eve run, then I'd encourage you to check out Cash or Trade, the world's only social network where fans buy, sell, and trade tickets at face value. Click on cashertrade.org and may the ticket gods be ever in your favor. We'll see you at Rochester just in a couple days. All right, guys. That's it. Thank you and good night. Osiris. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.